I am Brad Barton, and uh, Eunice and I uh, first want to say thank you uh, to Mount Airy for what you've been as a church family for us already. Uh, it's been a joy to be here. Uh, it's different in terms of when you're a pastor and then when you're a layperson, but it, you know, it's really been a blessing to God. It really has. Um, the transition has, uh, I, I left in uh, June and uh, the transition has gone a lot better than I thought it would for me. I'm really enjoying listening to preaching and, and being involved in the choir even and things like that uh, that I never would have thought I would have been doing a year ago. Uh, but God's leadership has got me to this place to where, um, just to tell you briefly, I, I was pastor at Williamson First Baptist and over the last, really this time last year, I started really thinking about, okay, it's been 23 years, God, and I go through this, I went through this process every three, four years and, and prayed, God, is it time for me to do something else? And usually he would show me a direction of, okay, you can do this, you can do this for the church. And then this time it was clearly, yeah, it's time. It's time to let somebody else put their prints on this church. And so... I worked through that for about six months, and uh, in that process, God has made it very clear that I'm going the right direction. Um, in that process, what I'd ask you to pray for, uh, starting in January, what, what I feel God leading me towards is, is helping small churches, um, dealing with financial issues. Uh, a lot of small churches don't really get the finances of a church. In our small association where I came from, uh, Palmetto uh, Baptist, we had 26 churches in it. And in those 23 years that I was pastor, I know of three churches that were embezzled during that time. I know one church that for three years didn't pay Social Security. And so churches are struggling with those type of things. And, and that's, I feel called and, and have, I think, the opportunity and the financial resources, uh, thankfully, to be able to help. So be praying for me and, and direction and what that means and, and how to do that in the most effective way for God, if you will. Um, but along the way, one of the things I'm doing in the meantime is I took a part-time job at Lifeway in Anderson. And it's been a really interesting experience. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. I enjoy their interaction with people, tell, talking to them about their needs and helping them show them this, that, and the other. Um, but I'm coming on that they say the busiest time of year because, well, it's Christmas. And for Lifeway, their two busiest times of year are Christmas and guess what the other one is? No, Vacation Bible School. <laughs> you said that good. <laughs> um, so I'm coming on the busiest time of year, so whether I'll, I'll still like this 30 days from now, we'll see. But I have enjoyed it a lot. Uh, one of the things that has started coming out one, that I haven't quite gotten used to is we're already doing Christmas stuff. I'm one of those uh, with Christmas music. Now, since I've been there, which was the end of October, they've actually been playing Christmas music. And um, I was, I'm one of those people who, until Thanksgiving comes, after Thanksgiving meal, then you play Christmas, Christmas music, not before. But those, so there's some things like that have changed, but... There is always the stressing as we come to this point of the year of what it means for it to be Christmas, what it means for it to be Thanksgiving. You know, we're, we're hitting that moment where everything seems to change and hit overdrive, where we've got so many different things that are all a lot of times good things, but they can wear us out 
And so what I wanted to look at tonight is for us to have an understanding of the attitude we're called to have as we approach both Thanksgiving and Christmas, what it means. We at Lifeway are selling a shirt that says Christmas, but in parentheses is the Christ to try to get you to think that's what it's about. The other thing we're doing for $5, you can go today, you can go over, not today, you can go tomorrow. For $5, you can buy a yard sign that says Jesus is the reason for the season and put it in your yard. You know, the little things that to show the world, hey, remember what it's all about. Well, what I want to talk about tonight is before we tell the world what it's all about, we need to make sure we understand what it's all about. Because we can get so busy that we forget why we do what we do. I mentioned I'm seeing an choir and enjoying it. I don't know if Dave is, but I'm enjoying it. And I enjoy listening to the music and, and learning it. I have probably listened to the, the Christmas story songs that we're going to be doing, literally each one at least 100 times. <laughs> but with that becomes rote, Right? where you're seeing it just because you're supposed to sing it. And you forget about the message. And that's what we have to be careful of and what I think as Christians we're called to be responsible for as we look at our lives at this time of Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know, um, before we stick this yard sign, Jesus is the reason for the season, maybe we ought to put it in our den where we see it, where we think about it, and where we understand it. Because it's easy to do things just to do things. One of the hardest times I found for me and my faith as a pastor was Christmas. Because after you've preached 22, sermon, 22 years of Christmas sermons, you start saying, okay, what do I preach different? And the fact that you have to be at a Christmas Eve service. And you can let that run in you and say, well, why do I have to be at a Christmas Eve service? Why can't somebody else do it? You know, and you can start thinking those things. And they're the wrong thoughts. Because you're focusing on yourself and not who God is. And not what the season is really all about. We weren't the first ones to have that problem. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah starts out his book, his right, what becomes the book of Isaiah. He starts by talking about what the sins of the people of Israel were. And it's interesting what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 1. He, he describes a courtroom where it's really weird what's going on in this courtroom. Because the defendant is also the victim. You know who the defendant is? It's Israel. They have failed. And the people they're hurting are themselves. In fact, one time he says, you're black and blue from being, beating yourself up. Why are you doing this? And he's trying to just show them their guilt for them to be able to see the need 
to get things right. And one of the places I want us to look at tonight is Isaiah 11 uh, through 18 is what we're going to be looking at. And Isaiah is speaking for God. This is what he says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this of you, this trampling in my courts? Stop bringing your meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. You know, in Sunday school, we've been talking about the Levitical structure, the worship structure, the sacrifice structure. And we've been talking about the, the need for it and also what it then pointed to in Jesus. But here you're dealing with a people who for years now have been operating under that system and had long ago checked out of it. Oh, they were still doing it, and they were doing it the right way. For right now, things were going pretty well with Israel. The worship in Jerusalem was good. They had a nice place. Everything was grand on the outside. But on the inside, God's saying, you've lost sight of what it's about. You're still doing the right things in terms of the motions, but where's your heart in it? To get to the point where God says, why are you trampling in my court? That's sad. You know, um, we just put uh, new hardwoods in a couple of years ago in our, our house. And, and so I always try to make a big deal now of making sure my feet are clean. Because you don't want to mess up the floor, you know. Sort of like a new car when you first get it. You park it way too far away from everybody because you don't want to get it messed up. You're concerned about it then. But, you know, after you've had your car 12, 15 years... Oh, there's, a, there's another tear in. Oh, big deal. Because you're used to it. You've lost sight of what it was. The people had lost sight of what they were called to do. And he then goes into what were their celebrations. He says, new moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. The time that God's saying, I want you to come together and worship, that's the idea of what it's supposed to be. He said, I can't stand it. I can't stand it anymore. Now, I don't think we've ever, at least I've never been involved in a Baptist church at a new moon celebration. I think probably the closest we get to these things that they call festivals and, and new moon celebrations and those type of things is Christmas and Easter. That's our new moon festivals. And so when we look back at the Old Testament and we start looking at these people and say, boy, they got it bad, part of the reason why it's in the Bible is for us to look at ourselves and examine ourselves and make sure, are we doing it the right way? Do we have it right? Or are we just going through the motions because it's time? 
And this is an opportunity for us to ask that question. And as we come, may we be a people that remember what it is about. He says in verse 14, Your new moon vessels and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I'm wary of burying them. And then he even goes even into their personal worship. He says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Why? And for the first time, we get a symptom of what's going on. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cows of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And so as Israel stands in the courtroom and God is the judge, he's saying, you're beaten to a pulp. You're guilty. These are your crimes. And this is what you're guilty of. And as he stands, as they stand there, they have to take it in. And the question is, do they listen? If you know the story of the rest of Isaiah, they do not. They keep on doing the same old thing, but they lose sight of the God that they're supposed to be worshiping, even as they worship. So as we come to Thanksgiving and Christmas, think about how are we supposed to worship? What's it about? I think this is a grand opportunity for us to ask that same question. What are we supposed to be doing? Are we doing it in the right way? You know, I think this morning what we saw is the 607, is that right, Kathy? 607 shoeboxes. I think of the statement that I just read. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. That was an example this morning of doing the right thing. But it should just be one example. Our hearts, our attitudes should be about what makes this season special as we're getting ready to enter it. The thanksgiving that we should have. The praise of God for coming into the world and saving us. That's what it's about. After he accuses them of all these things that they're guilty of, he then changes his course of action. You're thinking, as judge, he's getting ready to say, and therefore you deserve death. And it would be right. But instead, look at what he says. Come now, let us reason together. Let's talk. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. 
Now Jesus, uh, that God here is not saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. He's not saying that. Their sins are red. They are guilty. But the good news for them is the judge is there. And he's willing to listen. To hear them respond. To give them a chance. Isn't that what Christmas really is all about? We need a Savior. Because we're just like the Israelites. We're guilty. There's a song that Nicole Norman wrote, I guess it's been four years ago now, called Real. And in a moment I'm going to... Uh, ask Paul to show up, but as, as we prepare for that, let me sort of set the scene for you. The song deals with a guy who is in the midst of Christmas season, and it's all a rush. And he is hurt, he, is, he, he just doesn't feel himself. What's it all about? This comes from a book, she, she uh, took the song from a book that I think Al Andrews wrote. And in the book, the man decides to take a walk just to clear his head. And as he goes on the walk, he sees a manger scene. And he's drawn to it. Let's look and see what the song talks about from there. Frozen statues in the cold, washed in moonlight, blue and gold. Mary's babe in plastic hay, quiet wonder on her face. Mary, you look so serene, far too pretty, much too clean. think we know you well but what stories would you tell of all the dirt and dust and shame every burning labor pain and as I turn to walk away I hear you
course, if you look brave and true, do we know what it was like to be you? How many sleepless nights awake found you desperate and afraid, and as I turn to walk away, I hear you say. it was real it really did happen I have at least eight nativity scenes either hanging on a tree or in my big display that we have at our house I'm not against nativity scenes but they're also fake Mary doesn't have a hair out of place. She's kneeling. What one of you women, after you've had children, are going to be kneeling? And a poet, just an angel-like expression. Maybe Jesus has nothing, no birth effects in terms of a pointed head or any of that going on. It's not there. And the best of the nativity scenes, at best, what they give us is remember the real one, what it's really all about. It's not just Christmas, it's also Thanksgiving. A few years back, I went, uh, had the opportunity to go to the Ukraine for a mission trip. And it happened to be in the middle of October. And as I was there for, I think it was about 10 days, I spent two Sundays 
going from place to place, and in the meantime, speaking of this place, that place. But during the Sunday services, I think I went to four of them, two on each uh, Sunday. In front of me was, just in front of the altar area, was just a pile and pile and pile of every kind of pumpkin, every kind of vegetable that you could think of. Because the part of the Ukraine I was in is in the breadbasket part of the Ukraine. And they had so much. And it was, you know, on those cornucopias that uh, our, our church, we used to put a cornucopia at First Baptist out every year. And it was all that hollow stuff, you know, you could throw at people and stuff like that. This was the real thing. And every one of them was like that. And then I thought about the people who I was talking to and preaching to when I was there. These people, half of them didn't have running water in their house. But yet they gave for the display of God's abundance, the first fruits for them of what it meant to give, to be thankful for the blessing that God had given them. One of the things that was there were grapes. And folks, I am spoiled from being able to eat a grape from a supermarket. It's just awful now. I don't care how good they are because those Ukrainian grapes, you cannot touch them. I mean, literally every house had a vine growing outside their house. And you could just pick grapes and eat them. And that's what I did most of the time was pick grapes and eat them because they were so good. And then I come back here and I go to Ingalls and I, I still like grapes. But it's not the same thing. It's almost eat, like eating one of those plastic grapes out of the cornucopia is what it almost tastes like to me. It's not really as good as it could be. And as we look at Thanksgiving and as we look at Christmas, let's remember it's real. There is something to be picked. Something to be tasted. That is the real thing. It's there. And John, he's trying to uh, tell the story of who Jesus is. And he starts out, his gospel, different than the other, other gospels, and he tries to give sort of the theology behind who Jesus is. And in John 1, 3 for 5, he says, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. In him was life. Not the life that we pretend to live, real life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. You know, I have some issues sometimes about how we as Christians say, you need to listen and do Christmas the way we do Christmas. Why should they? Because they don't understand Christmas. They're still in darkness. 
It's our responsibility to show them life, real life. They don't comprehend it. They don't understand it. But in the midst of that, Jesus came, and he made a difference. John goes on, and John 1.10 says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to the people we read of in Isaiah. He came to them again. He went into enemy territory. Christmas is not about a cute little baby in a manger. It's about a Savior who's come to save a world that is dying. To bring life. Yes, he was born as a baby. But that's where the world wants to leave him. He's cute. He can be picked up and moved where you want him to be. He doesn't make you do things. He doesn't ask anything of you. He just smiles at you and and you want to pat him on the head in the manger. But it's our responsibility to remember that he's real. That's what it's about. He goes on and says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor husband's will, but born of God. You know, Keith this morning was talking about how Paul was a nobody trying to be a somebody. That's not the way the world works very well, is it? Most of the time, you have to be of somebody to be somebody. You have an advantage. But what Christ did when he came in this world was he says, I don't care who your parents were. I don't care how much money is in your bank account. I care about you. It's about you and me. And that's why he came. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Christmas, folks. The one and only came in this world. Full of grace and truth, giving the gift of grace and truth. And I want to close tonight by tying the two stories together because I think John does it in John 3, starting at verse 16, the famous verse we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. 
Light is coming to the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds are evil. Does that sound like Isaiah 1, 11 through 18? Sure it does. That's the verdict. One of the things I like to harp on is every single one of us are guilty. It's like we have all gone to court and we have been found guilty and now we're on death row and we're just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. That's what he just said. We're all guilty and we're all on death row and we're just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. But God, through Jesus, came. Come, let us reason. Let me tell you where life is. Let me tell you the true light. Folks, that's the message. And I'm telling it to you, to tell it to me, to remember as we go through the rush of this holiday season, to remember. He was real. He came. The one and only. The one and only. Came. To reverse the verdict. To give us an opportunity. It is a great message. May we live in it. May we pray in it. May we look at the world through it and understand what it's about, who we are, and what we're called to be. And hopefully, prayerfully, as I put up the manger this year, I won't think about, oh, isn't that cute? I'll think about the one and only. The one who came to bring life. The one who showed God so loved the world. May we be real. And may we share the real message of Christmas. And pray for those opportunities for, to share the real message of Christmas as we go from place to place. And as we deal with a world that does not comprehend, that does not understand, may we be the messengers of real life. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. We are not deserving but your grace and your truth abound. Your mercy has been shown in your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for that. And God, as, as we come to this time of year, as we start thinking about what we got to do here, there, and yonder, and think of who to get, what, for, what to get for who, and all those things that go on, and the parties we got, and this, that, and the other, Help us to remember you. Not as a legend, 
not as a myth, not as a story, but you and how you've revealed yourself through Jesus Christ. May we be a thankful people. May we, as we gather for Thanksgiving, may we be a people who praise you not with fake things, but with our real lives, our very souls, glorifying you for the God that you are. The God that you displayed to the Israelites, the God that you displayed that night in Bethlehem, and that God that displays himself to us this evening. Thank you for coming and reasoning and showing us our wrongs and forgiveness of those things. And then giving us a message that is real, that is life. Help us to live it in a right way, a way that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.